that's crucial. And that's a question that's on every alfalfa grower's mind these days. We've had a lot of challenges keeping alfalfa in the stand and and persistence is an issue. In fact, so much of an issue that we are getting ready to advertise a position solely for the look at uh, persistence of alfalfa, trying to deal with winter kill, trying to solve that problem finally after many years of trying. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds in the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Excellent by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. AB Vista, feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function. Typical fresh cow incidence of clinical hypocalcemia is 3 to 6%, while subclinical hypocalcemia affects 50% or more of mature cows. Based on cutting-edge research, Excellent offers a new approach that is both effective and easy to use. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Barry Bradford at Michigan State University. And today I'm very much looking forward to talking with Dr. Dennis Hancock. Dr. Hancock is the director of the U.S. Dairy Forage Research Center in Madison, Wisconsin. He came to the center in January of 2020 after serving as a professor in the Crop and Soil Sciences Department in the University of Georgia. And he also served as the state forage extension specialist there from 2006 to 2020. Uh, Dr. Hancock, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So I wonder if we could start with, can you explain, maybe not everybody listening understands what the Dairy Forage Research Center is and how it fits within the overall research infrastructure in the U.S. Can you give us some background there, please? Sure, sure. So the U.S. Dairy Forage Research Center is located in Madison, Wisconsin, but it serves the entire U.S. uh, dairy industry. What's unique about the Dairy Forage Research Center is that we have an integrated approach to our research. In other words, we have all the disciplines represented. uh, And and when we work on a project, it is very interdisciplinary. It's not uh, uh, siloed within a particular discipline. It is very interdisciplinary as, you know, anyone that's been on a dairy farm, especially dairy farmers know, uh, life is complicated and these things interact. And, and so that's why we have that set up that way. Uh, the Dairy Forge Research Center is part of the USDA Ag Research Service or ARS. Um, and we've been active here in, in Madison since uh, 1981. They built the uh, facility in 1980 and first started uh, hiring scientists in 1981. Great. And how, how exactly does it interact with the uh... University of Wisconsin? Well, we're based on the campus. We have a building on campus uh, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, but we have also a relationship with them at our research dairy in Prairie du Sac. Uh, Prairie du Sac is about 45 minutes northwest of of Madison, and they help us to run that dairy. They provide the labor and and, uh, running all of the uh, uh, animal trials and, and helping us assist in the animal trial uh, research data collection, et cetera. 
they're great teammates with us. We've been working very closely with them ever since I've been here, and and they've really been working well. And we have a number of UW, UW faculty who do work at our research farm as well. With that said, we have um, agreements and collaborations in over 30 different universities uh, uh, across the nation. So we we collaborate across many different disciplines in many different locations. Fantastic. So this is a key leadership role at a, actually what I consider to be one of the most important um, research centers supporting the dairy industry uh, in the U.S. How did you get there? What, what got you on the path studying forages? You know, not too many kids are in 10, you know, 10-year-olds uh, saying, I want to study forages. <laughs> what, what was your <laughs> Well, um, you know, to how I got to the center to start with, I, I would say that I agree with you, and I'm. this is a biased opinion now especially, but even before I became the center director, uh, the Dairy Forge Research Center has always been, in my mind, uh, one of the top-tier research institutions serving the dairy and the forage industry. Uh, any reference book that you pick up, uh, almost all the time, you will see references with names of former scientists uh, listed there and, and current scientists as well. Uh, they've had a tremendous legacy and that's what we're hoping to to build upon. And, you know, it, it builds on my ability or my desire to to have an impact uh, on, on the dairy industry, on the forage industry writ large. And that stems from my upbringing. I'm, I'm proud to be uh, one of those uh, kids that was raised on a farm uh, it wasn't a dairy farm. It was a beef cattle farm, but uh, my, my playground was our front pasture. And I spent a lot of time um, out with cows, watching cattle graze, watching what they grazed, uh, thinking about uh, how how that all worked and, and how did they turn grass into beef or into milk. Um, it, it was fascinating to me. And, and I ended up uh, going to a little small college called Berea College in eastern Kentucky. They have a work-study program where you work your way through school and they pay your tuition for, for your work. And um, I was able to link up with some folks at the University of Kentucky and found out, I didn't know this before going down there, but there was a research station only about 30 minutes away from where I grew up. And over the summers, I was working for the University of Kentucky as an intern uh, with the forage program in in uh, Princeton, in Western Kentucky, and uh, that's where I got bit by the bug. I was uh, surrounded by some mentors there, uh, Dr. Monroe Resnick and Dr. Gary Lacefield. Gary Lacefield is one who's very well known in forage circles, and he really got me uh, enthusiastic about the, the prospect of turning that into a career. Before that, I had no idea you could make a career out of doing research on, on grass, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, good mentors are always key. I'm glad they, I'm glad they gave you the hook there. Yep. So my understanding is that maybe one of your deepest areas of expertise is, is in alfalfa agronomy. Um, what are some of the keys, if, if you were going to point out a few highlights of key management strategies for alfalfa to give high yields and balance that with good stand longevity? Yeah, that's that's crucial, and that's a question that's on every alfalfa grower's mind these days. We've had uh, a lot of challenges keeping alfalfa in the stand, and 
and persistence is an issue. In fact, so much of an issue that we are getting ready to advertise a position solely for the look at uh, persistence of alfalfa, trying to deal with winter kill, trying to solve that problem finally after many years of trying. Uh, there, there are certain keys that we know that will affect and improve persistence. And, you know, talking about my uh, mentor, Gary Lacefield, one of the first things that I was doing, it was uh, working on alfalfa persistence all the way back then. Worked on it in my graduate schools uh, days at the University of Kentucky. And then when I went to the University of Georgia, which Georgia is not an area one thinks of uh, growing alfalfa, um, getting alfalfa to persist in Georgia taught me a lot about what it takes to to get alfalfa to persist. And fertility is, is the number one criteria, uh, particularly uh, potassium. Potassium fertility is absolutely crucial. We often would talk about in extension meetings about, uh, you know, how real estate folks talk about location, location, location. Well, for alfalfa, it's potash, potash, potash. It's so crucial to everything that it does, especially as it relates to carbohydrate reserves in the roots, um, being able to store those carbohydrates in the roots through the winter. Uh, potassium is absolutely crucial to that. And I assume that would be critical to preventing winter kill? It is one of the main issues, one of the main uh, criteria to trying to prevent winter kill. The second thing is with harvest management and making sure that we're not just thinking about the top growth, that we're also thinking about what's under the, under the soil surface. And that's particularly true as we go into uh, the fall and here in Wisconsin and, and Michigan and the uh, northern states, what we have to be very careful about is our timing of that last cutting. We really have to be careful about cuttings taken after about the first or second week, depending on how far north you are, of, of September. And, you know, if we if we cut too late, and let's say we cut in, in late September and that, that crop begins to regrow a little bit, well, if it regrows about six or eight inches, it's almost depleted all of its carbohydrate reserves to be able to grow that far. And then it doesn't have anything to grow back in the spring. It's weakened going through the winter. It doesn't have the electrolytes in the in the roots and the, the crown to be able to resist freezing damage, et cetera. So it, it becomes very challenging. So harvest management in the, in the fall is really crucial. Um, <clears throat> and then harvest management through the year. We in the dairy industry, we tend to harvest alfalfa in that uh, late bud stage or maybe even in the early bud stage, you know, trying to get that ultra high quality out of it. And that really, over time, will deplete the root reserves of alfalfa. Occasionally, it's, it's nice if we can take a little bit later cutting, uh, you know, something that's gone to, say, the 10% bloom, particularly in the late summer or early autumn. That's when we really see the best benefit to root reserves. So you mentioned the challenge of growing alfalfa in Georgia and a lot of the years you spent trying to help people do that. I am not much of an expert here. So it, it doesn't, it's not immediately apparent to me why that would be difficult because we talk so much in the north about winter kill. So what's the big challenge in the south and how do you help overcome that? Well, there's several big challenges in the south. Uh, one is that... You know, that's, that is a cool season species that's trying to grow really well in, in extraordinarily high heat and humidity. 
And especially through the overnights when the temperature is 80, 85 degrees and nearly 100% humidity, the plant actually has difficulties respiring and, and really being able to um, handle that kind of stress. Disease pressures, ultra high, um, the fertility, the soil pH typically is really low. There's the typical soil pH in many of the southern states would be in the low fives. So uh, allowing and making sure that that pH is in that six, five-ish range, it requires quite a bit of, of uh, lime. Or in the case of Georgia, they have a lot of poultry litter that goes out there. And uh, poultry litter has a lot of calcium in it, as well as uh, buffering of the soil pH and improves the pH of the soil. Uh, and obviously a lot of fertility. So it actually fit pretty well in, in uh, those systems. Uh, we had kind of mastered the, the process of interseeding alfalfa into Bermuda grass, which they seem to be kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of quality, but together they are a match made in heaven. And that work continues on. We have some colleagues there at the University of Georgia that continue doing some of that. There's some plant breeding work, some grazing work that's done with it as well. But um, yeah, we uh, I was able to uh, work with a former plant breeder there to use some varieties that uh, were well adapted to the South and just phenomenal fits to that system down there. So, oh, that's exciting. Yeah, it's a different world up here. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard of a Bermuda grass alfalfa um, intersect. Pretty neat idea. Yeah, it really works well. Uh, it would make uh, some really good uh, beef cattle feed as well as for dry cow, dry dairy cows, heifers. Dairy heifers uh, on that would be really good. And they also include some of that into dairy rations in some farms. So w one reason that alfalfa is nice, if we can get decent persistence, right, is it's a perennial crop. We're not having to, I mean, obviously just the, the cost and the time required to plant a new crop every year, you don't have that. But also what we're hearing more and more about is the advantage of not having to rip up the soil every year, right, with a perennial crop. So, um, yeah, there's a few regions in the U.S. where it's common to use perennial grasses for dairy cattle, but for the most part, that's it's pretty much annual forages other than alfalfa in the U.S. So, first of all, can you just talk about, is there a need for us to look at more perennial forages? Is there advantages to that? And, and if you do think that's the path we need to go down, What's your vision of what that might look like in the future if we can make that work? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And, you know, I want to first start with saying that I think in general, we at the Dairy Forge Research Center have gotten a reputation of, of not really valuing corn silage. <laughs> and, and I think uh, people think that we're, we're solely focused on alfalfa and these perennial forages and and we recognize and, and we value corn silage in the diet. This is not necessarily a, um, you know, corn silage is bad type of uh, perception that we have. What we're trying to do is, is to match that. How do, we, how do we improve that diet and the overall management of the dairy so that we have some ecosystem services, that we have value being put back into the, to the overall uh, soil health uh, development and that we're not depleting the carbon uh, of the soil, depleting the nutrients of the soil. Um, and, and also uh, 
thinking about this in terms of, of the dairy diet, uh, alfalfa can be very much a, a major part of that diet. And I'm not just talking to, you know, 10, 15%. I'm, I'm talking about it could be the majority of the, of the forage in the diet and still produce a lot of milk. And, and especially in this day where we are really valuing components and the, the other aspects of milk beyond just fluid milk, looking at protein and, and uh, fat content, et cetera, uh, it's really crucial to have some alfalfa or, and, and or um, other perennial species in there. The, the perennial grasses, I think, have a, have a great fit, too, and, and we have uh, historically had a great program with our perennial grass breeding program. We're, we're also getting ready to fill that position again. Mike Kastler, our former uh, grass breeder, has retired, and, and we are in the midst of, of refilling that position. But uh, those grasses that have been produced over the years are very digestible. They have high fiber digestibility and great agronomics excellent yield, et cetera. Um, you know, and if you look at, at the, the tonnage and the investment in alfalfa, sure, that first year of alfalfa, you're probably not going to pay for that alfalfa in that first year. But, you know, if you can carry that forward three years uh, at a minimum and, and beyond two in most cases, and uh, in, in most cases, you're going to really see a, a profitable uh, crop to be grown off the, that alfalfa. The key question to me is, is you know, corn silage is, is king. There's no doubt about it, but there's also a place for the queen of forages. Um, and, you know, they, they really match together really, really well in a diet. Uh, they also have huge impacts on the ecosystem. And as I was talking about carbon in the soil, you know, being able to incorporate alfalfa into that mix, you, you're increasing the soil carbon. That increases soil health and microbial activity in the soil. Obviously, with, with the legume, we're also creating a lot of nitrogen. Uh, so corn following alfalfa, there's something magical right there. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing what corn will do following alfalfa. And that, that extends for two years after uh, the, the alfalfa has been taken out. So it does have value. And, and what we're focusing in on is how these all fit together into a system. Uh, how they can really work as kind of a hand in glove uh, together with corn silage and the other feed ingredients that we have available to us to uh, to really maximize productivity and, and profitability for the dairies. That makes a lot of sense. Well, part part of that long term vision I know is that uh, the center there is is planning for a new research dairy. That the facilities are being renovated in the future, I guess, in the near future. And I wondered if you could give us kind of a big picture update on that. Like, how did that come to pass and where are you at in that process and what's the vision for the future? Yeah, that, I appreciate that question because that's something I'm very proud of for the center. Uh, we are on the cusp of being able to really do some phenomenal things for the dairy industry going forward and to continue the legacy that we have as a center. Uh, the dairy that we currently have was built in 1979, and it shows it. <laughs> and a lot has changed in the dairy industry since 1979. And I know a lot of your listeners are going to say, well, I've been, our dairy has been operational for much longer than that. That's absolutely true. And, and we recognize that, but we're also trying to, to ensure that what we do is representative of as much of a, a 
of a background of the dairy industry writ large as we possibly can. So we're going to have a mixture in this new dairy of a variety of different research tools to really mimic in as much depth as we can all manner of, of dairy systems. Uh, we're, for the first time ever in the ARS system, we're going to be able to have robotic milkers. We're, we're going to have four robot modules, and we'll be able to do replicated research with those robots. Uh, Within each of those 60 cow units, we'll also be able to uh, measure intake of, on individual animals um, with the goal of being able to really um, drill down in what we feed in the robot to match the feed that is in the bunk. And so that we can really fine tune that for that individual cow's needs. That's the goal is precision feeding down to that individual cow. And, and there's some good practices going on out in the industry with that right now, but there's still a lot of questions. We get questions all the time about how do we best match what's in the robot to what's uh, in the bunk. So that's one of our main priorities. The second thing is we're still going to have conventional freestalls. We're, we're going to uh, do some replicated pin-based research in, in freestalls. Uh, we will have 20 uh, pins of eight to be able to do a large number of, of trials. Um, four of those will actually be set up to do jerseys, by the way. We, we do have a herd of jerseys as well as a, a Holstein herd. Um, so we're able to do some comparisons between those species or not species between those two different breeds. Um, they sometimes act like two different species. <laughs> they definitely are different. Um, and then we also have tie stalls. Uh, we will have 48 tie stalls where we will be doing some very precision advanced uh, types of research where we would be feeding very precise rations to them, uh, doing infusions even, uh, where we would be measuring things uh, in, in microliters and, and parts per million type of uh, uh, research. And then finally, we'll have emissions chambers. Everything these days is, uh, is talking about the net zero initiative within the dairy industry, and we are committed to assisting that process. Uh, we want to get to a net zero uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And, and one of the ways that we do that is to fine tune what we feed to our, our dairy animals. And one of the key things that we need to understand is what they produce. So we will have uh, the capacity to do that for individual animals, um, even to a point of measuring not only methane, but uh, nitrous oxide, um, uh, nitrogen gas, oxygen consumption, carbon dioxide, um, maybe even hydrogen sulfide, um, those types of things we hope to be able to conduct in that in those chambers. So in addition to that, uh, we'll have kind of a state-of-the-art um, campus. What we'll have in that farm is really a campus of buildings where we will be able to do other types of research. We're also going to increase our agronomic research capacity in that new facility. Uh, and then, of course, we have to uh, accommodate the, the farm itself. They, they have to grow the crop for our, our 360 cows that we milk and the dry cows and the heifer stock that we have in addition to that. Uh, we will be also raising with our heifers quite a bit, too. So uh, that's going to be something quite new um, that we're looking forward to integrating into the system, too. So 
Yeah, it's exciting. And that's one of the reasons uh, that I came to the Dairy Forge Research Center is because I knew this was on the cusp. And, and um, you know, for me, this is about impact. And one of the things I want to do, I, you know, I, I'm sure you probably have a similar philosophy, but, um, you know, I got in this to help dairy farmers. I want to make it where we're providing answers to the real world and, and something that they can put in place on their dairy. And that's the legacy of the Dairy Forge Research Center. And that's what I'm trying to do to continue that, or I'm going to die trying. That's, that's the hill <laughs> I'm going to die on is to try well, to get that done. done so. <laughs> so a few questions. I mean, that's, you know, how comprehensive the tools will be is pretty exciting. Is this going to be in Prairie de Sac? Is that correct? Yes, it's it's actually going to be about five miles away from where the current dairy is, but it's actually going to be more central to where our crops are located. Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a long story, but the long story short is when the original dairy was built, there was a Badger Army ammunition plant. The U.S. Army had a ammunition plant that we were able to crop the land, but we couldn't build anything on that that land. We had to build off to the side. Uh, the, they exited the property in the late 90s and they gifted us the land in, in 2004. And so we are now able to build on that land and, and move everything a lot, a lot more centrally located. And also, by the way, away from the Wisconsin River. Uh, you, if you've ever been to our dairy farm, you know that we are about 300 feet away from the Wisconsin River. It's a terrible place to build a dairy. Yes, it is. <laughs> that was really <laughs> the only spot that they could go with. So. So, yeah, it, it will be a lot more environmentally friendly from that standpoint, less risk, and, and also a great show place. Uh, we're really going to be excited to bring visitors to, uh, to that new facility. For sure. So you mentioned you knew this was on the horizon even when you took this job. So help us understand a little better, like, is, is the money already there? Is, are you in the process of actually starting the building or where are we at? Yeah, great question. So um, this process actually started back in the late uh, 2000s, the, the first decade of the 2000s. Um, we have a really great stakeholder group who had lobbied Congress to try to get funding to replace that dairy. And originally there was funding available for it. Uh, and, and they went through what is known as developing the program of requirements, which is basically the specs of what we're going to build. And I got that far. And, and in 2011, the federal budget entered into a spiral and, and that money was pulled back. So, so that was off at that point. Um, and there was a big challenge, a lot of uh, concern about what the future was uh, with the dairy, et cetera. But in, uh, 2019 for, or excuse me, 2018 for the FY19 budget, uh, Congress was able to restore that funding, and uh, we have we were appropriated uh, 72.3 million, which sounds like a lot. It is a lot of money, and we take that that responsibility very seriously. But when you start building 18 different buildings uh, to federal standards, too, by the way. <laughs> Uh, it is uh, that that money, you know, and dairy dairy built dairy farms, dairy buildings are expensive in their own right. And then, you know, trying to make sure that we can do research with those facilities is is a huge challenge. So um, 
Right now, we are at the 35% design point. So we have reviewed a number of documents uh, at three different time points already, and we should receive the 50% documents before the holidays. And we're looking forward to uh, taking a look at the next version of that. And uh, we, we really ran them ragged during World Dairy Expo last week, running around to various vendors and talking with different uh, companies about what we would be doing in the new dairy. But then um, we expect to be able to advertise this for bid for construction uh, to, uh, to put out for bid in the spring. And with uh, hopefully being able to break ground late summer, fall timeframe, and if not then, in the spring of, of 24. So we should be able to be in it. It's a 30-month build, so it'll probably be late 26, early 27 before we're actually in it. Uh, we're, we're counting down the days, believe me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I empathized with all that, as you know, but uh, it, it is kind of astounding the amount of work, and I know how much work you're putting in. So I, on behalf of the dairy research community, thank you for your efforts. Uh, it will be exciting to see what can happen at that facility when it's all done. Well, and, and we're excited to be able to provide that as a resource, not only for our own scientists, but to other researchers as well. And uh, like I said, we, we try to do research across the country. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going down to Tennessee and uh, we'll be out at Maryland in a, in a few weeks and uh, haven't made it over to, to your shop yet, but I'm hoping to uh, visit with you guys soon, too. But we have right now over 30 different uh, collaborative agreements with various universities around. So we like to. We like to partner. That's that's really what this is about: is to integrate our disciplines to uh, to really assist everyone to uh, to service the dairy industry. That's fantastic. I will say, yeah, it, there are. Uh, you know, I know enough about the research world that the, you know there's allocated funds to support research at your facilities, and I know there are people with situations like that, they'd say, I don't need to partner because I have funds already. So I appreciate that <laughs> that you guys value that and you're looking for ways to collaborate because I think, you know, you end up producing better research by having more people involved. Absolutely. Absolutely you do, especially when you involve various disciplines that are looking at it from different angles. So that when you go to the farmer and say, this is our, our proposed solution to your challenge, that uh, you've already thought about it from as many different angles as you possibly can. Exactly. Very good. Okay. Well, we've kind of got some uh, closeout questions here that we'd like to throw at people a little bit off the wall. So one thing uh, I want to ask you, what's something that you strongly believe in that many people would disagree with? Ooh. So this one, this is a tough one because, um, I'm, I'm probably going to get some flack over this one. Okay. <laughs> there's there's this uh, notion that um, that grazing is bad for uh, greenhouse gases, and and that grazing cannot be a profitable way of, of making uh, milk. And let me first say that I believe milk can be made profitably on all ends of the spectrum. I, I really fervently believe that. I've worked with enough dairy farmers over the years to know that. You can do it full confinement and, you know, max corn silage and, and really pouring the inputs. And that can be very profitable. The other end of the spectrum can also be profitable. Every farm is a little bit different in what they can, can do. But 
one of the big things is uh, there's a common misconception that any animals that are grazing are just their carbon footprint is through the roof. And that's actually not true. We've, we've done some comparisons where uh, in, in some of the early work that I did at the University of Georgia, we were comparing conventional dairies to, to grazing dairies. And in some case studies, we found that per unit of milk, it was basically the same. There really wasn't that much difference. And especially if you consider not just the, the greenhouse gases, which, by the way, if we're grazing a really high quality diet, high quality pasture and supplementing with good quality feeds, that that greenhouse gas emissions are, are relatively minor. But if you look at uh, what's stored in the soil, the carbon footprint of, of or the, the negative impact on that carbon footprint of socking a lot of carbon down into the soil because of rapid root turnover in, in that soil when you're building soil organic matter, it can be really phenomenal. In fact, uh, one of the most highly cited papers that I was involved with was actually ended up in one of the nature journals. Um, it was looking at the buildup of soil carbon in these grazing systems. And it was at, at, the, at a record rate. There is no other study in literature that shows as much carbon buildup in the, in the soil as we observed in some pasture-based dairies in, in that study. It, it is phenomenal what is, and I didn't believe it to begin with either. I thought that it was probably, yeah, maybe the top three inches it's, it'll build up. And, but no, it was down several inches deep into the soil, adding tons and tons of carbon to that soil every year. So, yeah, that's a that's a popular misconception that grazing is bad for the environment and bad for a carbon footprint. But truth is, is that we can do all of those systems very well and still aspire to and reach that that net zero initiative. OK, great answer. It is time to our famous three. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like DSM, providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. All right, our three standard closeout questions. First of all, what's your favorite dairy-related book or resource? Well, that's a that's a great uh, question. I, I have so many on my desk uh, that uh, it's hard to pick one. Uh, I'll tell you one that I'm I'm working on right now. It's a, a brand new uh, publication on on corn silage that some of my colleagues there at the UW and uh, surrounding states have uh, been uh, party to. I think it, you can get it through the Hordes Dairyman Magazine. At, I'm not trying to advertise. I'm just saying that's uh, where it's published. Uh, so that's probably the one I'm reading right now. Um, probably my favorite of all of the forage dairy books is is the one I really started with and got me started in my career, which is the Southern Forages textbook. Um, it was written, co-authored by one of my mentors that I mentioned earlier, Gary Lacefield. And after my first summer working with him, he he gave me a signed copy that was signed by all all three of the authors. And I was just a hick from the, you know, sticks of Kentucky. I had never met anybody that had written a book before. That was so cool to me to, uh, to get someone to, uh, to give me a book that they had signed, you know, so, uh, so that's probably my favorite. Yeah, that'd be hard to beat. I like that. All right. What about your favorite book or resource outside of agriculture? Um, the, the obligatory one and, and everybody's going to think that I, uh, 
and just him saying this, but the Bible is still really a, an important reference book for me. Um, also hard to beat. Yeah. <laughs> it's very hard to beat. Yeah. And it's, it's very durable. It's been around for a long time, but, uh, um, you know, probably I, I, I travel a lot, so I do a lot of audio books and, and I actually, uh, like to listen to, uh, a lot of fiction when I'm, when I'm driving. So that's, uh, that's probably my next one. Some things like, uh, uh, Michael Connolly or um, some of the uh, um, some of those uh, mystery fiction uh, novels are really a lot of fun for me to, to listen to and read. Makes sense. Yep. And then in your opinion, uh, what sets successful dairy professionals apart from those that are less successful? Oh, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll say two things. One is vision and in investment back into the business. Some of the most amazing people that I've met in my career have been dairy producers or other farmers who, who had vision that could see something in a field or in a, in an opportunity that no one else could see that they, they saw something that was just phenomenal um, and turn it into a very profitable business an opportunity that no one else really saw. The second thing is, is they invest back into their business. Uh, like any business, one has to reinvest in their business to be able to, to grow, to keep up with the growth of, of the, the industry. And I think um, one of the challenges in the dairy industry is with the ebbs and flow of the, the milk prices in the market, uh, being able to continually set aside 10% or whatever it might be to reinvest into the business is absolutely crucial. Great points. I, I think it's particularly hard when you have to make a, a very large investment at least every 20 years, right, to at least renovate a parlor, if nothing else. And that's hard to stock away that kind of money. But yeah, you're right. Big difference. Well, Dr. Hancock, I have very much enjoyed this conversation. Uh, thanks for sharing some of your wisdom on forages and also an exciting project at the Dairy Forge Research Center. And uh, appreciate you taking the time for this. My pleasure. I appreciate the invite. All right. Well, take care. That's another episode of the Dairy Podcast Show. Please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any more of these episodes. Take care. Mm-hmm.